Screen Heat is back. And we have a lot to talk about. Yes, a lot to talk about and still more to talk about from last time. Part two. We had to make it a twofer. Twofer with the great Stuart McKinnon. So if everyone is tuning in to hear the exciting conclusion of that wonderful interview, you're in the right place. Yeah, Man in the High Castle, one of my favorite series ever. So mm-hmm. Absolutely. you can blame me. Ah, he, you're, <laughs> you're fanning out, my friend. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yes, this is Screen Heat Miami with your co-hosts. Kevin Sharpley. Dale Martinez. We are brought to you by... Cinevision. Kijik Multimedia. Chemical. And, of course, the Miami Media and Film Market. Which we must say... It's coming. It's coming. It's coming like a freight train. Four weeks away now, a little less than that by the time you hear this podcast... So there is still some limited seats, but we're almost sold out, Kevin. We're getting there, but we need to, Yes, let everyone know. If you want to be part of the action, you need to register. There's no live streaming this year. Nope. So you've got to be in the room to catch a little piece of the magic. Don't miss out. Mm-hmm. Yes, MiamiMediaFilmMarket.org, or you can find it on Eventbrite. Go to the social. Miami Media Film Market on Instagram. Yep. yep. Yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, at Miami Film Market uh, or search Miami Media Film Market and you'll see all the, the great speakers that we've been highlighting, including our current interview subject, Stuart McKinnon. They're coming from far and wide. Ah, yes. Even from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Shrek. Ah, oh, s- <laughs> Sometimes I feel it's Shrek. Sometimes I feel it's like Fat Bastard. <laughs> Get in my a, belly. There's a, a mix of both. <laughs> Speaking of like like franchises and remakes, we're going to get into a couple of, of projects, uh, IPs. But but man, whatever happened to Austin Powers, I could have sworn there should have been another one by now. The, he should have. I mean, you know, he did that movie for Netflix and they probably paid him a gazillion dollars. Um, One billion dollars. About, yeah, I can't even think about <laughs> uh, the name. The, the name of that, I, I don't know. I, uh, right. I'm a fan, so. Yeah. But I mean, arguably his best uh, outing was Austin Powers. To be honest. Yeah. I mean Shrek. I mentioned Shrek, you know. So, but bring him back, man. Come on. Yeah, man. Bring Austin back. Bring him back. Uh, so, um, I do want to jump straight into our first subject because this is speaking of, you know, something coming back. I was a big fan of the Halo video game. Now, one of the unfortunate things about video game adaptations is most of them are bad. (laughs) I mean, you know, just to be honest, um, I, I did like the Resident Evil series, maybe two of them or so, but right. I'm a Mila Jovovich fan, so, you know, maybe I'm a little bit, a little bit tainted. Yeah, a little biased but, there. Yeah, tainted, biased, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. But this Paramount Plus series, Halo, is really making some noise. Oh, yeah, it absolutely has. I mean, apparently it's been doing well since its debut in March 24th. It is now the number two streaming 
show on Paramount Plus, second only to the Yellowstone prequel 1883 as the most most watched series on the streamer. And it's really playing off uh, apparently globally. They, they did pay a hefty budget. I mean, I'm talking nearly $10 million an episode for the, the Halo uh, series spinoff. But it's definitely looks like it's playing paying off in terms of new subscriptions, especially when you're a newer streamer kind of late into the game, the way Paramount Plus is that you really need some big hits right off the bat to really drive those streaming and subscription dollars. Yeah, well, I have to say, you know, that's the only streamer I don't have. So I have all the cable channels, all the streamers, Paramount Plus. Um, I got a gift for you, my friend, because they are currently offering a one month free trial. And I'm going to be hitting that so yes. I, can, I can get my Halo fix. You got a Halo fix and a bunch of other stuff. And, and I got it uh, primarily because one of our is a sidebar speakers at MMFM this year is Joe Menendez, who directs, among many other things, the Picard series, Star Trek Picard, which is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. So I've uh, been kind of trying to dig into that a little bit. He's a fantastic director that'll be at the conference. And then, of course, you know, if you're a fan of the industry, the offer is great as well. You got to stream that. Yeah, I guess I'll be getting that streamer and just adding it to my to my uh, pocket pocketbook. You see that? Paramount <laughs> Plus, if you're listening, Screen Meet, we do a great job of driving subscription dollars ourselves. I just got my colleague to sign up for it. So if you want to sponsor Screen Heat Miami, we're <laughs> the phones are available. Okay. All right. Anyway, uh, so yeah, that's great, great news for Halo uh, yeah. and for Paramount Plus. Not so great news from the Mouse House, though. Boom. Oof. Yeah. Disney Not in a good it. way. Not in a good way. So this is a, another spinoff. We had mentioned spinoffs and franchises earlier, but this is the, the highly anticipated Lightyear Pixar film, which is supposed to be sort of a weird kind of origin story on Buzz Lightyear, the famous character from the Toy Story franchise, getting his own film and getting the full Pixar treatment but apparently was not treated well by audiences this past weekend. They were expecting somewhere in the neighborhood of 70, $80 million opening up. Not a lot of family films uh, out there to compete with right now. And they, they didn't do the numbers, as they say, uh, about $51 million, which, which really hits home considering it was a $200 million budget, another $100 million in marketing. So they're already 300 mil in the hole and they only came up with 50 mil opening weekend. That's going to be a tough one to climb out of. I think that this is Pixar's uh, worst outing. Yeah. To be honest. Be. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to go all the way back to the good dinosaur, which actually opened bigger than this. Um, and Lightyear is coming in already with buzz, you know, right? a buzz, a buzz Lightyear. Nah. But you know, it, it already no has pun intended, Kevin. <laughs> no, I'll take it. <laughs> I intended that pun. Um, but it already has some name recognition, you know. Right. So right. but the recognition, I think, from some of what could be considered uh backlash may have affected Lightyear, unfortunately. Right. And and so I think the first drop of the news of what could potentially be uh affecting backlash was uh the united arabs emirate they are banning the movie mm. for a gay kiss right yeah so definitely some controversy surrounding this film as well right and you just mentioned it 
that the uh, the gay kiss that's kind of been making the headlines uh, around the world for this film. And, you know, we, we've always known Disney and Pixar to be quite a progressive company in general. Uh, and and but in terms of this particular film and the family audience, particularly domestically, did that kind of backfire? We were talking a little bit off mic about how potentially this could have been a lot of like misinterpreting headlines because, you know, obviously in the film there is a gay kiss, but it is not the main character, it's actually a secondary character. Uh, two female characters, I guess, you know, kiss and have a relationship that's, you know, in the film. Uh, but I think maybe what I'm thinking is some families who just read headlines think, oh, they made Buzz Lightyear gay. And that wasn't originally a thing. Uh, although he did a bit of cross-dressing. There's been some memes on the internet of him dressing <laughs> up like in a, <laughs> like a housemaid or something in one of the yeah. toys, the original Toy Story movie. Yeah. But Bugs Bunny did that. Yes, a lot of everybody. Yes, absolutely, Bugs kissing bunny, transsexual, transsexual bunny, <laughs> gender fluid. Uh, who knows? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, for real though. I mean, <laughs> what are people complaining about? You know? Yeah, yeah. So it could have been the backlash to that, uh, but I think, uh, yes, that's Bugs definitely Bunny true. gender fluid. <laughs> Bugs, that, yes, you know that'll be what we're become infamous for, right? That's gonna be the. <laughs> oh boy, that's good. what have we done? Uh, uh, so, but yes. That, I think that obviously, you know, there's going to be a lot of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking over this one. And that was one of the issues that some media outlets have brought up. Others have also said that, you know, in addition to the, uh, you know, the gay kiss sort of controversy, that also it could have been that it was just a confusing storyline, you know, because we were essentially what we were doing is that, you know, we always saw Buzz Lightyear as a toy and the whole conceit of the films was that Buzz Lightyear thinks he's not a toy when in fact he is an actual toy that just happens to magically come to life whenever the kids walk out of the room. That said, you know, to see Buzz Lightyear as a sort of real character in space that ultimately, I guess, becomes an inspiration for the toy, uh, that wasn't clearly defined by Disney's marketing team. So I think a lot of goofs on the marketing and promotional side yeah. as well. And I think that that's probably, well, I don't know because I haven't seen the film. You know, I will see it ultimately because I have Disney Plus, as I said, I have every streaming service and now I'm getting Paramount Plus, thank you. Um, but I, I do feel that there were a lot of, you know, different conflicting messaging going out there. And, you know, in this day and age, yeah. you have to be as clear as possible, so. Absolutely right. Yeah, well, yeah, Pixar. Oh, well, Pixar, you know, look, don't feel bad for them. They've had mega hits over the decades. They're, Every single movie has been a hit. The only well, one. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, there have been a few clunkers. Cars 3 actually didn't open that well. 53 million, I think. Yeah, but I mean, disappointing on, for them. And yeah, then, that, yeah, yeah, like you mentioned, Good Dinosaur did terribly. That was their one of their worst. And then Onward actually didn't do well. But again, that was in 2020. So you got to kind of lay that on the pandemic as well. I saw Onward. Great film. Great film. Yeah, I think that was just unfortunate timing issue again, because of that was just during the, the whole height of the pandemic and everything that was going on. That, but pretty much Pixar is yeah. one of the most winning studios in history. Absolutely. So. Yeah, that's why Disney paid so much money for them back in the day there you go. Uh, during the, the Iger reign, which I think that's another sort of sidebar is, you know, I think considering the latest sort of string of Disney missteps. A lot of folks are. Oh, listen to our episode last week. Yes. We mentioned them all. We did. Um, ever since uh, Bob Iger has stepped yeah. down. That's funny. Yeah. Bob Iger just 
He was the magic man. He had the Midas touch. Yeah, he, he was, was the Tom Hanks of studio that. executives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Disney does have something that I personally have really, really enjoyed, which is Kenobi. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. Yeah, that's, again, another boon for the, 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 the vaunted Star Wars franchise. You know, of course, we, we saw sort of this sort of shift uh, with the Mandalorian. And now I think, you know, uh, obviously then Boba Fett, which had kind of mixed reviews, but now this Obi-Wan series seems to have really stuck with audiences and they're demanding more, including its stars. Yeah. yeah. I, I just see, this is the thing. I'm a big fan of multi-layered storytelling mm. and, you know, of course, storytelling that you just don't see a, a, a lot of it coming. Yeah. And, you know, these kind of prequels and character uh you know deep dives oftentimes you know it just falls flat because it could feel like a money grab but i don't know the star wars ever since the mandalorian the series that have come out after have been you know pretty pretty darn good boba yeah. fett like you said had mixed reviews i enjoyed it i didn't super love it like every other one i think that they could have done more with that but what i really love about Kenobi is it is a multi-layered uh, storytelling vehicle. Look, the star is one of my favorite actors, and I've been uh, a, a, a fan of his. Oh, you can go all the way back to Train Spotting. Oh yeah. But I am a big fan of the actress that plays Imperial Inquisitor Riva, mm. and that story turn. And I don't want to give, uh, even though, you know, that story turn happened a couple of episodes ago, um, I didn't see that coming at all. And there was a lot of backlash about her character. Right. And the backlash is just because she's Black. And so, uh, you know, there's been a lot of, Disney had to come out and uh, make statements. Uh, A lot of those lately. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Other actors have come out and made statements, but she has done such an, an, an incredible job and for such an important character. And for those who haven't seen all the episodes, you, I think that you'll see her importance as you move forward towards the end of the series. Oh, absolutely. And there is, you know, this kind of uh, hanging Chad in a way, this story between Kenobi and Darth Vader, mm. which, you know, this could be a critique of Star Wars overall, right. which, you know, sometimes these relationships could be one note because it's good versus evil. Hmm. But I did pull a paragraph out that uh, speaks on that. Uh, and this is from um, Deadline. Darth Vader was rather one note obsessed in chasing down his old master for nothing more than revenge. Whereas in Empire Strikes Back, his pursuit of Luke was the mere fact that his that it was his longtime lost son. Was Darth angry that Obi-Wan split his body in two back in the Revenge of the Sith? Or is it just about good or evil? Or the taxation of trade routes? What was the point of seeing Darth Vader and Obi-Wan fight again in a lightsaber battle? The aorta of the final, the finale, that sees the latter buried momentarily beneath a pile of boulders. Now I just gave some spoilers. That's, that's okay. <laughs> Reading wrote, I would say the arc here in Obi-Wan Kenobi is this old 
Jedi regaining his strength after hiding out in the desert during an Imperial Jedi purge. Ben damages Darth Vader again, slaying his helmet, breaking the control box on his chest. And I am not going to go any further because then it goes into more spoilers. Mm-hmm. But it's a little bit deeper than just revenge. But I do love the notion of, you know, if you've seen the first films, which to me arguably are the best ones, Ben does just appear from the desert to, you know, help to foster Luke. And you just don't know how long he's been there, what he's done. And we find out a little bit later through some of the other films, but we you don't see the that. Clone Wars? <laughs> <laughs> the first three were the best. Um, but at any rate, which, which really aren't the first three. Um, right. Episode five, six, and seven. Yeah, four, five, and six were definitely the, still the, the gold oh, four, standard. Four, five, and six. Yeah, the, the gold standard. But we really don't know a lot about Obi-Wan Kenobi. So the movies do delve into that a little bit more. And this really does flesh that out even more. And I think that it's done, done it very well yes. in this series. It's fun. I, I'm excited to see it every week. You know, it's not a slog like, oh, no, I've already made it through. So, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. This is definitely on the winning side of recent Star Wars iterations. And like you said, they've been hit or miss. Mandalorian did great for the franchise. The solo spinoff, not so much, <laughs> which had its own internal drama, you know, with, uh, yeah. uh, if you remember. Two Chris directors. Miller, yeah, Phil Lord, the hometown boy, uh, you know, kind of going at creative odds with uh, the head of uh, Kathleen Lucas Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miss Kennedy. Then not seeing eye to eye on certain things, but then, you know, obviously the great Ron Howard stepping in, which kind of clunky when you kind of step in that late in the process yeah. so you know and i think he got paid was, though he got paid you know yeah, <laughs> yeah that's i think your friend greg howard says that the later you come in the more you get paid <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> he did so go back to i think what was greg episode 17 yeah. go back to greg Allen howard he says it in the episode but, nothing uh, like those production rewrites <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep 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 but you know i have to say star wars is back yeah that's for sure yeah yeah someone Overall, else is the, back yes the series has seen a revitalization after right. you know again seven eight nine mixed reviews kind of hit or miss with some of the storylines there and how the overall cinematic one through nine was concluded but i think disney plus has been able to kind of re-energize and re-enthuse the star wars fandom with some exciting series for sure yeah but what i was getting to is um someone else is back yes yes johnny speaking depp. of re-enthused the one and only johnny depp uh johnny I, I guess you know that's uh i just uh i think johnny depp may be back <laughs> yes <laughs> so i mean th- this is something because through all the all of that turmoil and this is kind of a longer protracted turmoil Johnny Depp was kind of, you know, incognito. We did not yeah. see much of him. Yeah. But he's appeared to perform with Beck, who is an artist that I love, three times already. Three times. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he's resurfaced. I think he's taken a victory lap. And it, yeah, he is. And I think a lot more folks are starting to realize what a talented musician he is as well. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so definitely a triple threat. Yeah, so I anticipate 
and this is just a prediction, um, that he's going to be back in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, well, I think, you know, again, you know, I hate to keep harping on Disney, but I think that they have to try to make up. There was even a petition going around that Disney and Warner Brothers should apologize formally for. Oh, that's yeah. not going to happen. But so, uh, obviously, yeah, that's not a Mia Culpa. An apology would be, yeah, Mia Culpa <laughs> would be uh, <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. But I think the way that they would Mia Culpa, like you said, is making an exorbitant financial offer for him and to. You know, Again, this so. is just a prediction. You heard it here, three hate Miami. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm not the first one, but right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure if I'm Jerry Bruckheimer and I'm producing the franchise, that's my first call every morning. Kissing <laughs> 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 the Johnny Depp. If if his ex girlfriend Kate Moss is in the second row cheering on Johnny Depp at his London concert, I think that the first yeah. row should be bought out by Jerry Bruckheimer throwing <laughs> flowers on stage. <laughs> I'm not sure if Jerry was the one that, you know, threw him under the bus. Right, right. Well, under you know, the boat. Yes, yeah. Again, if you stream the offer, you'll see that it's pretty much, it's that's the typical producer thing is like, he's got to fix it now. But, yeah. You know, the studio is going to say, all right, yeah, we messed up. Oh. Chanel, yeah, go get him back. <laughs> yeah. go, get, go get our boy back. There you and go. So who, who knows? But I, you know, J- Jerry's a pretty, you know, great producer. Obviously, he's done a lot of good for Miami with the Bad Boy series uh, franchise as well. And just, you know, I think he's a talented enough producer that I think he'll find a very unique and interesting way to work Mr. Depp back into, you know, what he considers probably his favorite character that he's played throughout his career. Yeah. So uh, we're going to jump into this interview. But I just remembered something, and this is not on the docket. I want to give a big shout out after the jump to one of my favorite actors who's in one of my projects, and now he's in one of my favorite shows. So, okay. Ooh. After, <laughs> after Stuart McKinnon. Right. Yes. A big shout out. There you go. Speaking of great producers, here is the great conclusion of our interview, two part interview with Stuart McKinnon. Get going. All right, and we're back. Part two. Part two. Just like The Godfather, we're sure it'll be as good as the first. We <laughs> had to have another one. You don't have any bodies in there. <laughs> <laughs> Minus the bodies, yeah. <laughs> we want life at the end of it. Godfather, Godfather one, you know, there's the biting scene. This is definitely my age. Is the is when uh, Brando is in uh, is in the garden, just these few minutes before he. He has a heart attack and dies. And I think it's such, um, I don't know, it's such a kind of moving moment in that story, the kind of, the sense of uh, a life lived. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then he ends up in a garden uh, growing tomatoes and dies. And it's to, to make the decision to have that at the end, a kind of full stop in life. Um, I think is uh, I think that's why you know the, you know this genius who made this series this these films so it was a gene truly a genius it kind of hu- humanized the um, this kind of evil character anyway, yeah okay. this is something I talk to my students about a lot you know if you are going to have um, you know this kind of big protagonist they need to have layers you know, and they need to have a dimensionality, you know, a three-dimensionality about themselves that people can connect with. And of course that the actor can connect with. And, you know, Brando was was one of the best at that, that's for sure. So 
and yet, yeah. and yet, and kind of intriguing, it's sort of an enigmatic character, you know, not one dimensional, yeah. which is the point you're making, is that, you know, I think it amuses me that uh, long form drama that was appeared maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago when people discovered the, the anti-hero, and oh my God, has anyone led any literature in the last few hundred years? This is a kind of the fundaments of, of, of storytelling that you have a, you have a character you assume is a bad, has no dimension, is just an evil character, a caricature. But actually, the, as, as I think was the genius of The Wire, you discover that the good people you assume are, are set up in the storytelling as evil uh, can turn out to be the most interesting and uh, on their journey become decent people, human beings. Decent people. Yeah. Yeah. At, yeah. at the very least, relatable yeah. <laughs> in some way. <laughs> So where we left off, uh, and you know, I think that we still have a little bit of exploration in this, is uh, the man in the high castle. Again, one of my favorite uh, uh, pieces of work, that, whether film or whether television or whatever you call it, um, bar none. I just, man, I, I couldn't wait until the next season came out. So. Uh, I think that we still have a little bit more. Well, we have a lot more to explore, but we have a lot more to explore about a lot of things. Yep. So where we left off was uh, we talk, talking about layers, you know, all the layers that you all folded into that particular story. I mean, you had long form episodic gives you the ability to explore deeper. Yep. And so you had the seasons to do it. And boy, did you guys really utilize every minute. So can you talk about that? You know, how, how you kind of unfold these indelible stories in the long form over time and more related to the man in the high castle. Well, one of, one of the things that I think we touched on the, the earlier conversation we had was that these stories are, <laughs> it goes without saying, you adapt a classic and the classic has within it a set of elements which have given it um, classic status. So different generations will have read Philip K. Dick and uh, 10, 20 years later, the next generation reads that book and rediscovers this and then the generation later. And each of these stages, each of these readers have different, bring to it a different perspective different history, a different, you know, different, just a different, um, different generation, different um, values. But what makes the classic is that every one of these generations finds something in it which runs through our lives, irrespective of the passing of history. So within the Dick novel, and, and it's a particular, for people who are not familiar with the story, it's a, it, it's not written in a conventional form. It's an, an enigmatic, it's a, it's a tease. It, it's intriguing and engages the reader, but at the same time, it's, um, it's open-ended. It leaves you to interpret in different ways. And um, so that, that's the starting point for something, both from a, from a commissioning, from a, in this instance, uh, it was initially the BBC, then it was Universal, the Studio Universal, and then it was Amazon. They all, um, all these block, and understandably so, all these broadcasters and platforms 
feel more confident in taking something that has a life outside television, outside drama. Um, a Philip K. Duke is a Philip K. Dick is a brand, and they're a following uh, leadership. And when it comes to promote something, so the broadcaster understandably is always looking for a security and knowing that this, as a book, has survived over many decades, over 30 or 40 years before this was made into adapted to drama. So within the, the, the novel itself, there's, there's a story, there's a set of characters, and that arrangement of the characters within this what-if um, world um, is successful as a novel and gives you a, an extraordinary platform as the storyteller, as the, the creator of a, of a long-running show, to um, to develop and build on these on these principles that he set out, and the, I, I I think that I think the, the first showrunner and who really created this show and is acknowledged as the creator of the show, um, Frank Spotnitz, really set down a set of rules which I, I really respect and and admire. I mean, I learned from him the way in which he approached this. That he said, look. Let's, let's respect this novel, let's respect these characters, let's respect the, the, the world he's, this, that Dick has created. But at the same time, it's a short novel, it's a few hundred pages, but we will take that as a starting point and, and, and continue to respect that throughout the novel. We'll follow a set of rules. One of the rules that, he, that we broke, he, he, is, he sort of followed uh, in the first season, which he, which he created, um, was that we'd never go to, we'd never discover this enigmatic um, man in the high castle. <clears throat> ah. in which we would never cross that line. In later se seasons, we did. And I think um, uh, it, 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 was, it was kind of intriguing the novel, intriguing in, in creating this long form drama, <laughs> but too kind of tempting for us not to kind of enter that world. But when we did, we broke a spell. We opened up something new, a new world in which we, we traveled. For example, there were a number of characters you saw as very different, living very different lives and uh, having very different relationships. So it allowed for sadness. Um, uh, it allowed us to ask the audience to think if, if you had lived one life, but if other things had happened to you, we talked earlier about school and careers. Um, if you'd taken a different path, where would you be today? So it enjoyed that in the storytelling, but it did break this spell of what was this intriguing figure, this, this other world, this, this man who collected other histories. So although I respected what Frank's approach, um, as I say, I think it was too tempting for us all not to step into that, that other world. So that's especially, I was going to say, especially if you got Stephen Root to play the part, then <laughs> he did a phenomenal job. Yeah. But the other, I think, is that um, in long form, although you, on all the shows, you have producers, um, there was um, David Zucker, um, who I think is a lovely, extremely talented uh producer who runs Ridley Scott's television division and um, editors who worked with him, Jordan, who I thought also was a huge contributor in terms of script editing the show. And um, my own colleague in 
in, uh, in Headline, who is a script editor also, she, she provided a, a real input, a kind of, these kind of invisible kind of um, supporters, skilled professionals who are all contributing to shaping the show. But the overall show, the overall direction of that show is created both by producers, um, in this instance, less by Amazon, who, who basically set targets and principles, and in an, in an intelligent way, by the way, I think uh, really an interesting way, not in any way intruding or, or, or pushing for certain line to be taken. They would advise, they would give comments and notes, but they weren't, um, they weren't finger wagging, which I, I, I acknowledge and really respect them for that. But the people who are creating the show are the, you know, myself, David Zucker, and, um, and, the, and the showrunner. But of course the showrunners changed in the course of the show and the writers in the room themselves changed. And then behind that, the support that I had through my company and um, uh, th through Scott Free, the, the people they had in, in supporting school script editing. So one of the things to an outsider, a lot of people know about rooms and <laughs> showrunners and the sort of language of, of building these shows, it's, um, it starts off with a set of principles and ideas creatively, building on this classic novel, um, albeit an, enigma, an enigma, enigmatic narrative, a kind of open-ended um, story which you could take in, in, in different directions. You had choices to make, as, the, as Dick was doing with the reader. He was inviting the reader to imagine the, what, what you would be doing in this situation. Um, that was sort of the, the sort of groundwork was laid by Frank in the in the first season, but then subsequently, new uh, showrunners were hired. New complete, not always there was some crossover in the writers, in the room, but very different people who in, inevitably bring a perspective to the show, and when they bring it in the second and third season, fourth season, bring a perspective, they of course have got to go back to season one and understand who these characters are, but nonetheless are looking to consolidate, build, um, surprise you with what these characters will do and how they will operate. So it, it, it and perhaps it's obvious to say this, but what is really exciting in, a, in this long shows is the way in which um, that allows you to build and change these characters in a way that the novel, it just didn't, it's the, the form didn't allow you to do that. So the character has a history and has a life and you know that um, this character did certain things, had a certain approach. Um, uh, the relationships between the couples, the, the men and women um, um, in the show changed and developed and, and allowed us to raise all sorts of questions in, in, on that journey. And I think that that's, that of course, all I've said is, is, is true of all storytelling, but in long form, it provides um, a kind of, in one way, the danger of an industrial model where you create formula, you've got a set of characters, they're on a tram line, they, you, you pretty well know where they're going, where they're heading. Um, or at the other end of that spectrum, an opportunity to take a group of characters and as the story unfolds, to ask questions, well, what would we, what could we do with this character? How would this character change? How would the storyline change? And then the, 
The other point I would raise was the introduction of new characters to the story, because creating 40 hours of drama, 40 hours, you know, in which each of the hours must have its own beginning, middle and end, cliffhanger, as well as serve this long um, form, as well as the arc of the different seasons, you know, the middle act, <laughs> you know, the um, episode five or six, where you're wanting someone to die and, you know, all the kind of crisis in the middle of it. So you're breaking, I, I, from my experience of this, was 40 hours in which each of these series are broken into two halves. And uh, there was a beginning, a middle and end of the, the, the season one, two and three. There's also uh, a break in the middle in which the, 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 the storyline they, they is completely disrupted, usually thrown up and you know, thrown up in the air. But the final thing I wanted to, to, to mention, it's just topical. I, I was being interviewed by um, a professor a film that's writing a book about um, long-form drama and there will be a, an essay he's written on One Man Like Castle. So I've done two long interviews with him and I just got it this morning, you know, his, his draft. And what really is interesting for me is how he has interpreted this story and what he highlights in the across the four seasons. And it's to say something obvious, but it's, it's a topical example, it's really interesting for me, is that someone who is a real film buff someone who's really studied the show, um, we can talk about incidents, but he is reading the story in a, in a, in a really different way. To, not, in, not in big stuff, the, the, big, the big beats of the story are the big beats of the story, the, the development of the characters and so on. But his, his sort of, the, what he highlights for him and what he really was intrigued by and interested in was pr principally cultural between the Japanese and the, and the, uh, the, the German fascism is different. Oh, wow. Well, for me, it really was interesting. And something he highlighted, which I wasn't aware of, is that Frank Spotnitz uh, lived in Japan until he was four years old. And in an interview talks about how Japan has always played an important part in his life and really was, a, was a, an important part of the storytelling. And I was unaware of that until this interview. I was unaware of it until I read this man's kind of uh, investigation, interrogation of this series. So to, it's making a very simple point that the joys of these kind of this kind of storytelling is that it um, offers up to a, an audience around the world a story, a storyline, a concept, a what if, what would you be doing? But in but does give everyone who watches this room to interpret and find in that story what they want to find. Anyway. Yeah. Wow. And I think that a big reason for that is, you know, all the layers and, you know, well fleshed out characters. And, you know, I like what you said. And, you know, I'm sure that this was an objective, which is, I mean, I can't think of a show, you know, or a film that has that exploration of, you know, what would your life be like? I mean, you know, you could you could say, um, what's the Frank Capra movie? Every Christmas it comes on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but this, which is long form, you know, you could really see these characters fleshed out on two different levels, you know, in what they were like in one uh, 
one one dimension, I guess you would call it, what they were like in another dimension, and then how those characters are fleshed out over those times. I mean, it's it's pretty extraordinary, and I I, I would say, you know, that would probably uh, have to have been a Herculean challenge, but uh, the show won two Emmys, <laughs> so you know what, what I think the you know I, I, it's it's a drama, you know, and I'm mixed. I you know I mean. <laughs> involved in it for so many years so really always excited to uh to talk about it and reflect on it and you know um but i i do think that the models for me of, of drama you know you mentioned the godfather and um i think some of scorsese's dramas are true genius of the way in which he explores characters and really bad characters <laughs> from a particular culture within a particular framework of illegality and the mores and morality of these people inside it, you know. So morality is judged that this person's really bad, but not quite as bad as the other person. And this person's completely bonkers. So there's that, but um, that's a world. But Homeland to me was a, a in the first season was a genius. Where um, again the character, in a very way similar way to the way in which you, uh, which I, I think is is the man what man and I guess I was playing with these different 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 worlds that these people that we all live in but this is in a, in a sort of exaggerated form in homeland just the pitch itself i read the pitch before i saw the show and i thought this is just nails it you know that what does oh, wow. it what does it mean for a someone who has disappeared you know so there's a loss of someone at war go away they leave their family the world changes this person has to move on grieving and so then this one person comes back and what what have you been doing it's the enigma again and it's the kind of trying to unravel uh, trying to understand what this person was at, at obvious level what they were doing and have they changed and then realizing they have changed really significantly and ask the question could we change? Could we understand the other side? Could we understand a different ideology which is challenging our ideology? So I, I thought that was genius. And I think the, you know, we'd like to think that Manhattan Castle reached some of these levels in, in storytelling. But I, also, I think for me, the, the, the Wire was truly one of the greatest series of, um, that of, its, of our era. Where, and uh, it wasn't my, just my imagination of listen david simon and um, you know know the other many people have read i had the good fortune to meet him briefly and discuss this but uh i think again that story where that was all an entirely new story unlike the classic based on the classic or homeland based on an original tale an original idea the but what um uh the the wire created was we all, we all, I don't live in a city now, but we've, we've all, most of us experience life in a city. And we all know that cities are complex social structures. Um, and what uh, that series did was to just open up a world which we, through a fog, to give clarity to the views and understanding of how cities work and what corruption means good and evil within um, the organization of this, this, this city. And although I've never been to that city, um, I think everyone who watched it would reflect, 
would see the parallels between them, their, their, their world, their lives, their city, and the city that um, David was, was writing about. So I think um, what excites me about drama and relates to Man in the High Castle is that it's a story in its own right. It's got to engage, it's got to, it's got to grab you, it's got to carry an audience, it's got to invest in the characters, it's got to believe in the, and you've got, to, you've got to be interested, fascinated by what they'll do and why they do it. But if you can elevate the storytelling to say something which goes beyond that, which connects to what people, are, they themselves are trying to make sense of the world, like going back to people leaving school thinking, what am I going to do? Um, the story invites you to, you know, all stories are saying, well, follow me in this journey. I'll hold your hand. I'll take you on a journey. You should be, you know, I'll entertain you. But the classic drama, the drama that really has a new purpose is when it, it crosses over into something which is more profound and mm. not, not intellectually profound. I don't mean that intellectually profound, but I think what Dick was doing as a, as a writer, as an author, was exploring that. He was looking for something meaning in our lives and getting to that by telling us stories so the stories were intriguing but when they knocked on a door when you opened it a little and you look beyond he kind of said well look you as the you as the reader take over what do you see through this door what, what's there what's what's next rather than saying oh um when you open the door there's another body there's another <laughs> there's another murder there's another war and on to the, oh and there's another door down over the hill you know let's go there so you carry on carry on looking for something and in the end it's just uh it's a it's a narrative um uh, sort of you're on a train and you're happy to be on the train and to be entertained but when when storytelling really lands and uh <laughs> like like my reference to um brando and the tomato growing tomatoes at the end of a story what an ending to a story, how quiet, how, how personal, how private. But we witnessed the death of this man who'd built this huge empire, done some awful stuff, <laughs> constructed a, a moral kind of um, uh, sort of structure which he could justify to himself and his family, but it was from the outset, it was truly awful. And yet in the end, he dies like everyone else in a, a growing tomato. So, I thought that was a that was done with a view to kind of open this not just a, the man who was killed by some you know random killing or something he lived by you know he lived and died by the way he lived was to say uh, was to bring it back to humanity and to um, to tell a story which said this was a human being who made these who, who created this horrific um, structure horrific who who um, perpetrated some really awful crimes and. Uh, in, was inhumane, but at the end of the day, um, was a human being like us all. Yeah, no, absolutely, Stuart. And I think, you know, just to kind of wrap this segment and move on, because you have some, another fascinating topic that we want to jump in based on the op-ed that you wrote, uh, which we definitely want to cover. But going back to my film school days, and I think that definitely applies to High Castle, The Godfather, The Wire. Uh, one of the, the quotes I'll always remember from one of my film teachers was that um, a good film tells a story a great film tells a story and leaves you with a feeling, but the best films tell a story, leave you with a feeling and change the way you look at the world. Absolutely. And I've always remembered that. Um, but, you know, speaking of the world, uh, again, you wrote this really cool op-ed uh, in the EU Observer going back again into history when Reagan met Gorbachev and using that sort of as a history lesson for, 
history lesson for for Putin. So talk a little bit about that piece that you wrote and and how you think you know that applies into a sort of current global political situation that we find ourselves in. And and the impending movie. Right. I wanted to add a little little piece to that. Well, of course. This story, you know, I think I've mentioned, perhaps I'm repeating myself, but what I said first um, when we chatted uh, a week or so ago was um, it, it amuses me when people talk about how long it takes to get a film off the ground. And, uh, and I told you the story listening to someone on the radio talking about it, it took seven years and, I, and my wife laughed and said, only seven years. <laughs> Who is this amateur? You know? <laughs> So um, this this started uh, you know, many many years ago. I was in New York and picked up a remain book, a remainder written by Gorbachev's interpreter, and uh, still alive. He runs the Gorbachev Institute. There was a chapter in which he was talking about his work, his life with Gorbachev, his, his journey, which is in itself is really fascinating, where Gorbachev um, came from and where he ended up as. He's still alive not liked in Russia, but uh, respected in the Western world for what he tried to do. But he in Russia, in Putin's world, is a guy that was uh, responsible, largely responsible for the destruction of the Soviet Union. But I read this book, I uh, read this chapter, and what he said was that the two men, he and Reagan, had met in Reykjavik for three days and um, had talked about getting rid of all nuclear weapons, the need for that, the danger to the world and the need to do that. So I took this to the BBC and also to HBO and jointly we agreed that I would be given the money to research the story. So I went to Moscow and um, met the Politburo and well, five of the people, the chief scientist, various kind of political figures as well as this interpreter. Um, and uh, then went to the US and uh, met um, Joe Schultz and Colin Powell, who wasn't involved in that, he came later, but a whole range of people who were there, including the chief arms negotiator um, for Ronald Reagan. And uh, so put this together, we, uh, I, we developed as a, as a movie and uh, I had a studio who backed it. Uh, Michael Douglas was cast to play uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Christoph Waltz was uh, cast to play um, Gorbachev, and we were in Berlin um, building a set, which shoot it in Reykjavik, but to um, also to uh, uh, build in a studio in Babelsberg, just on the edge of Berlin. And the film finance was pooled um, because the studio wow. was refinancing. Really it was the first and only time in my life where someone played. And it was really, it was a catastrophe. And it was really, it was really an important story then. This was probably 10 years ago, maybe longer. Was this uh, HBO that had, that brought in no, the financing? No, no, it was, uh, I won't mention who it was. But it was oh, okay. Prominent, prominent studio, but it wasn't HBO. So it started as a TV movie and then everyone was excited by the story. And I will give you a sketch. Why what that in itself is not so interesting. But when I researched the story, I found that there were two things had happened which shaped first first of all it shaped Gorbachev and Raisa his wife and the second had shaped Reagan and Nancy his wife and these have never been told I'm not going to tell you what they are but they they were sort of life-changing for them both 
as human beings, setting aside their fundamental political differences, they had human uh, Christ, there were events in their lives that changed everything, in which Reagan said to privately to Nancy, I've got to stop this arms race. Now, no one knew this. He was seen by me and a young guy in, in Britain. I was campaigning like millions of others against the basing of cruise missiles in Britain. None of us knew that this man would never, ever press the button. Never, never. So if, we were, if America was attacked, he would not um, respond. And in the Gorbachev side, there was something that happened to him and his wife that they were, because he was the president, responsible for that horrified him. And he thought, we can never, ever let this happen. So I had these two events, knew then why the two men had, to everyone's amazement, talked about this privately, although with interpreters, only the interpreter, and the interpreter for Reagan, who really didn't respect Ronald Reagan. He was gay. Reagan was um, hostile to this, but you know, the world has changed, but at that point he, he was hostile to um, homosexuality, as he would call it. Um, and this man said he changed in that room in these two days when he heard the two men speak completely. So there's an incredible kind of drawing room drama around this. And so the film collapsed. I you know, was pretty devastated about it. So a lot of people, 150 crew in Berlin. It was a talented bunch of people. Um, so a lot of money was lost and it was a real mess. So that will never, that story will, that script will never get made. And then um, I subscribed to a magazine which does great reviews called The Economist. I mean, it's widely read. Yeah, yeah the kind of, yeah, I love The Economist. It, it was um, by chance, you know, I, and read it. It was a review of a, a new book written by a Frenchman historian who lives in Los Angeles, Guillaume Serena, um, who um, had written a book about this these two days. And, uh, so I, I, oh my God, this is the, other, the one guy in the world <laughs> researched the like I have. Got in touch. We got on really well, and uh, I talked to him about. Um, the, the past story, I shared with him these stories that he wasn't aware of, um, far more informed than I am, by the way, historically, but uh, he, the, this book, which he published, which was being reviewed, had a foreword by uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who really acknowledged this. So it was very much a, a Gorbachev's perspective on this. I mean, a balanced view, by the way, uh, very well written, but um, so I told him our story, really excited about it, we optioned the book. And then I thought, well, how do we take, tell the story 10 years later? And uh, one of the sort of writing partnerships, which I think is truly genius, is um, Uncle Tony Martin and uh, Armando Inucci. They were known in Britain and then they made a movie about two years ago called The Death of Stalin, which is a black. Oh. So, they are, but they're known in Britain as television writers who become, they, they wrote series for Channel 4, which are, I think, are just fantastic political drama, political wrong-running series. So I approached Ian. Um, Ian, Martin, Ian was really excited by this project and was attached to write it. So we are trying to put that together as um, 
as a movie. So then moving to today, um, the, the war in, in this horrific war in Ukraine, um, you know, it's really, I mean, it's, for me, is a game changer in my, I, I, I've got my, my family, my daughter and, and her partner are staying with us and we've been discussing this, the, the consequences of this for Europe, the consequences for our lives, the consequences for our grandchildren. So the article we wrote, and I wrote a similar piece with, uh, uh, about a series I'm still trying to put together, which is um, about a president who refuses to leave office. <laughs> Um, American president refuses, and how he does that before the events of Donald Trump. And uh, so I wrote a very similar piece with Nancy Soderbergh, who, who worked in the, uh, the, the, the privilege of this job, you research these stories, you get to know some really interesting people who've been in power, who can advise. Anyway, the, the relation, the article I wrote, the op-ed was um, written by Guillaume and a colleague of mine, a very close colleague, um, who said, look, why don't we put together a story which talks about the importance of negotiating, of reminding the world that Gorbachev and Reagan had got to this point of arms control and the necessity, um, <laughs> absolute necessity for the future of the world is although you have people in different camps with very different um, ideological beliefs, fundamentally different beliefs, they sat down and negotiated an agreement. So that was what, it was drawing a parallel with the film that we hope to make, um, an event about an event in history in the mid eighties, 1980s. People will not be aware of this story. Right. People are certainly aware of Reagan and Gorbachev. And it was, so it was a symbolic event in which we humanize this. It's not two technocrats, two ideologues, you know, uh, you know fighting out, we believe in this, we believe, what we show in the in our script is that these are human beings, despite the kind of rhetoric, despite our prejudices. And I have prejudices, by the way, about Reagan and Gorbachev. You tear that away and you think these are human beings. They're still, and when they look beyond their kind of politics, beyond their differences, they think, my God, you press this button and there's Armageddon. And there's nothing left. There's just nothing left. So it was a, it, that, that, that's the piece. And uh, that's, that's why we wrote it. I've had an amazing response to it from around the world. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine because, you know, there's so much posturing on the Putin side and the posturing comes from many different levels, you know, whoever is helping Ukraine, whether it's providing weapons or, you know, providing some type of relief, you know, Putin is uh, posturing about, you know, whether he's going to, you know, open the gate. And then you have uh, fin Finland and, and Sweden that are now, you know, I'm pretty sure they're going to join NATO. So it's kind of backfiring, you know, a big part of Putin's aim. And that was a red line. I mean, Putin said that, and now, you know, he said, oh, as long as, you know, you don't move militarily into Finland and Sweden, then that's the new red line. But, you know, you just sit there and you wonder I mean, this is a point in history that's never been broached. And, you know, Ukraine was former country of the USSR. And so you have these two countries that were, and, you know, of course, there's so many Russians that live in Ukraine. 
you have these two countries that are, you know, sister and brothers that almost hold the weight of, you know, what can happen to the entire world. And, and so that- It's only a consequence of the entire world, isn't it? The poverty in, in Africa because of grain shortage, yeah. because of rising fuel prices, because, you know, Europe is not going to continue to buy from Russia. So there's a, a limited pool of oil. And so prices are going to go up. But I want to relate this back to Manai Castle. That when we had this, when we were talking earlier about Manai Castle, of what a story like this means of what if happened? What, what would happen if these bad guys had won the war? What, if, what would happen if, a, if an American president refused to leave and retained power and, and justified it in a way that was believable, which is our story is the story that we, we tried to set up before um, this debacle of um, the last year, last election. But what um, I referred to an article we wrote with, with Nancy Soderbergh um, about the film industry. What if, I'm not sure if, I, if this is the case in the States, but in Europe, journalism is reporting this war, war daily, hourly, both on social media and in the, you know, on the networks. And it's, these are really brave men and women. I mean, there's two or three women in, in the British on Channel 4 and um, BBC who are truly extraordinary. I mean, these are really brave, skilled professionals interpreting the war for us on a daily basis and putting themselves and their lives, I mean, really at risk. I mean, really, really at risk. And, but when I then look around at the, uh, and we look at other industries, I mean, in the McDonald's have pulled out of um, Russia this last week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Companies, are, you know, car or automobile companies are pulled. There's all kinds, of, and there will be the many tens of thousands of companies that are no longer going to trade with a, with a uh, nation that's. Now, what in storytelling? So there are industries that are taking a stand. What do the film and television industry do? Can we name any storytelling? No. So I related this back to um, in this article was to say, where are the films? It's a war that's going to go on for a long time. Let's assume it's going on for some years. The, the war started eight years ago in Ukraine. Um, it's only been brought to the Western's door by this subsequent attack, but it, it was invaded, uh, Putin invaded. So I look back at um, my own memory of, of my own experience of the Vietnam War. And there were two things that emerged in the Vietnam War. There were many things emerged. But one was the deer hunter, which I don't know if you're familiar with this film, but yeah, me, it's a classic um, in which it really hit the world in Europe. I mean, this was a story which embraced. It was a. It, what is the story? It's a fairy tale, it, but it's a truth of what was happening. Like a bit like Homeland, very similar to Homeland. I relate this to Homeland. A community, working to a class community, real friends. It's time is spent in building that relationship. The men go to war. There's a scene in it, scenes in it which are just horrific. Some don't return, some return destroyed. And that friendship and that community have changed fundamental changes. That's the story. And so it reflects with big names and a big movie, something really, really significant. It captured, it sort of put in a bottle what America and the world was thinking. In parallel with this, a group of independent filmmakers in Europe produced a film called Far From Vietnam, 
most famous of this was a guy, a French director called Jean-Luc Godard. But document, we talked earlier about documentary, Joris Evans, who I think was one of the great- Yeah, one of my favorite directors. Oh, well, well Joris is, um, uh, was a contributor to this film. It's a series of films with, we, they, we were all outside Vietnam. We weren't in Vietnam. We were seeing on television, no social media, we were seeing on television, American bombers three miles high bopping, dropping the palm. That's our experience of the war, reading the newspapers. So these filmmakers all told different stories, some bits of documentaries, some montage, some, some, and when I look back at it, it was pretentious nonsense. It was very much in the 60s. But at that time, it gave us all an opportunity to reflect on how filmmakers storytellers. So I'm trying at the moment to put together the same idea to say far from Ukraine and invite people to, my idea is simply to tell stories, for the Ukrainians to tell stories, young people, old people, ill people, soldiers, to share stories in three or 400 words and for then invite a series of directors, writers around the world to interpret them in different ways. The logic being that very simple idea, people like you and I were living our lives, we're on a podcast talking about the film industry, there's someone else down the road talking about, you know, the, the food industry and someone talking about the automotive industry on podcast, and there's a war and your lives are turned upside down. So all your hopes, all your dreams for you and your family, your children, your parents, your, your grandparents um, have gone. You lose your home, cities have been destroyed. So I thought, what would, if all these stories reach that point of the dreams, we then can in the Western world say, well, how can we help realize these dreams of these people that, that came to, they hit a wall, we're still carrying on in our lives. They're not, they're all refugees. Many of these, many of them were lost their cities, lost their, they will never be able to, hopefully they will be able to return. So yeah. anyway, long apologies for the long-winded you know, ramble. But no, I mean, I, this is important. My so. point would be, it's just to ask a question of the film industry. You know, yeah. we should make, we have a responsibility, just like I feel a responsibility to do something about, um, the change in American government, the dangers of, of what has gone on over these last years, the danger of, of relating what's going on in Ukraine to two world leaders way in the past, in the 80s, who did look at the world. I mean, they had the same nuclear weapons, by the way. You know, they were looking at Hiroshima and Nagasaki yeah. and saying, if we do that, we just, we now have so many bombs, we all press buttons, there, there, will, there will be no world. We have no ideology. <laughs> we'll have back to the dinosaurs. So trying to make stories which have a relevance in a world that was we're not free of war, but now we have a war. Me thinking, well, I'm, I have the privilege of being a, you know, in an industry which tells stories, and I look around me and I think, well, who are I've been asking colleagues and friends and writing about this and saying, who out there is doing this? And I've not yet found anything. Been oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure your outreach is pretty far. We have this oh. incredible, powerful tool. I mean, yeah. journalism is using it. Newscasting. Right. Everyone's a phone. I mean, every night I'm watching stuff that's been shot by, you know, kids, by men and women, yeah. by soldiers. And, and it's coming in and it goes out, it comes in and it goes out. And the next day we see something else, someone will. And no one is reflecting on going back to Man of the High Castle saying, let's look at this, let's have a perspective on a what yeah. 
Now, we, or, or a what if, if um, Gorbachev and Reagan had arrived at an agreement. Um, right. Allegedly. And in this moment in time, the responsibility of industry, I think, should be saying, what can we do? You, we've not got answers. I'm not, we're not politicians. We're not going to stop a war. But what we can give people, um, like you said, JL, your teacher told you that what a film should do is, is have meaning and purpose. And, uh, yeah. and the irony to me, and throughout my I've never been in a war situation. There are wars always around the world. But this is a war that really threatens our, our values, our civilization. Yeah, yeah. no. And, the stakes uh, are high. And no one, no one, <laughs> I hope I'm wrong, by the way. Um, but, you know, I, I spoke to colleagues in Canada that I've been speaking to them over the last few weeks of trying to, to raise finance to, um, doesn't need a lot of money to raise finance um, to do something which gave, as we talk about Man in High Castle or, or this um, uh, Gorbachev Reagan story. To allow people to be both entertained, but also to reflect, to go beyond yeah. storytelling, and to do that with a war, and to say, what are our values? What are we? What are we? What can we do to support a, a community, a society that's being systematically destroyed by another country? Why? Well, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. And Kevin. it does. Yeah. It, it, but it, and it's something, as you said already, that has really touched on the entire world, and will we'll continue to, and so. You know, I know that at Cannes, there was a big focus on Ukrainian stories and filmmakers that, you know, came out of the Ukraine document. There's a big documentary uh, that came out of there and a couple of big films. And I'd be interested to see if that helps to create a little bit of a ripple effect. But I, I also think that the world has become more insular and, you know, countries have become, you know, more, uh, you know, focused uh, internally on the countries themselves that's happened over the past, you know, several years, um, nationalistic, one might say. So I'm hoping, you know, you can kind of feel this growth in connectivity. Uh, NATO feels as strong as ever. So I'm hoping that that creates a ripple effect that, you know, provides for these stories that although filmmakers and, you know, storytellers from the film, media, and entertainment industry uh, may or may not, you know, have, you know, political uh, clout, it still can give stories that are relatable and yeah. stories that as people we can connect with. So I, I believe uh, everything that you're saying, um, but I'll be bereft not to touch upon some of your, uh, your films, one in particular, Quartet, but uh, your films, because, I mean, you're uh, an extraordinary producer that works in television and film. Um, we'd have to talk at least about one of your films. And uh, Quartet, I think, is a film that, uh, you know, is at the top of the list. Uh, well, if the, 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 that was a, I, were, I had a good, you know, you know, like life, good luck. And uh, I, um, I, by chance, met in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, 
I was developing a film with, of all people, Harvey Weinstein. And uh, we went to, um, I was in this due to, I don't know why, I can't remember why I was there, but anyway. And I was standing in this beautiful location in, in the evening thinking, what a privilege to be here. And I was standing next to this guy who had these strange shoes on. And we got talking and uh, he had no socks and strange shoes. It was pretty cold. And it turned out to be a man called Mark Shivers. And Mark Shivers had run BBC drama and then created BBC films. I didn't know what he looked like. I knew of him as a kind of mythic figure. Anyway, I told him this story that I was trying to do with Harvey Weinstein. And he said, Stuart, uh, it'll be a nightmare working with this guy, but you'll at least get it made. Well, we never got the film made, but, um, and it was a nightmare. But, but anyway, that's another story about Harvey Weinstein. Really talented guy. Anyway, we'll bring him. you back for that one. Yeah, but um, Mark and I really hit it off. And he said, look, I'll try and help. And we eventually formed this company together. We, we, we formed a company. We became the closest of friends and family friends. Sadly, he died uh, about four years ago. The nicest man, most generous, brilliant guy. So he and I, um, he got a script, uh, a play sent to him by a man called Sir Ronnie Harwood, um, very prominent writer. Um, I won't talk about the man, uh, as, as <laughs> shouldn't go into that, but anyway, we read, wrote this, he said, and so Mark said to me, what do you think? And it's not the kind of thing that I would most be interested in. And I, I love this, uh, the play was very, it's quite different to the, the film. And I said, well, we'd have to rework it. But what I loved was this idea of people together. It's a fairy story. You go through life, sharp elbows, compared to the film industry. Everyone loves everyone. You know, we all get kisses at the end of um, emails. Everyone just fights and you kill everyone you know, in this industry. There's no love lost. It's just a, it's, it's a chimera. So um, we, they, they, this happens to be opera and uh, so all these people have known each other, worked together on the, you know, let's say on the film set, on the opera. Um, and then they get to a point in their lives where they realize that um, friendship is, is uh, more important than money making. And it's only age brings that to. So I thought, wow. So everyone I, I got, so I got the rights to the play and uh, Ronnie agreed to do the screenplay and uh, took it to BBC Films, it was then run by a man called David Thompson, really great producer, who's now independent and works in the UK, but truly really helped me in my career and his, and his team, an amazing team, BBC Films then. Anyway, he said, look, we'll, we're over the phone, he said, look, we'll, we'll put up the money to develop this show, great idea. Everyone in the, um, the industry that financed this show said, what are you doing? What, why? They called it the gray market. I don't know if they still call it the gray market. Why are you making a film for the grey market? And I said, I thought you guys were in for, into to making money. That's all you, you're really in the film. You know, most of the financiers are in it not for film. They want to make money. I said, don't you realize they're the only group of people that consistently watch this kind of movie? And every movie made for this market uh, makes money. But because uh, most people in the film industry in their 20s and 30s, I don't know what happens after that. We all go to some early graveyard somewhere, but the young, they run it. So editorially, they say nothing for that market. They're all making films for them for the generation. Anyway, the long and short of it, um, it was a, a cameraman in London who to the DOP happened to be friendly with Dustin Hoffman, who has a house in London. And Dustin was in London. They were you know, they met many years ago. They've always worked together. 
uh, this bit gossip anyway, but anyway, by the by, but anyway, he, he said, read it, Dustin, and Dustin said, wow. So um, we met for a, uh, a lunch in a very beautiful um, uh, restaurant in London called the Woolsey, where they used to sell cars, the Woolsey, it was a British car, it's a beautiful building, I mean, really beautiful, really elegant, you get tea and, you know, cups and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, we arrived there, I, I mean, I was in awe of Dustin Hoffman, Everyone, there must be 150 people eating that everyone wanted to come and speak to him and he was so generous and nice. Anyway, at the end of his conversation, he said, sure, I'll do anything to direct this. Um, now, everyone had told me, never work with Dustin Hoffman. He wants to direct films. Oh. He's a nightmare to work. You'll never make a decision. He was turned out to be the nicest, most professional director ever. Oh, anyway, wow. the, 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 the anecdote which abused him was me he said uh, are you an opera fan Stuart and I said really love opera he said I know nothing about opera but he said I'm going to show you something and he said you know I'm thought of as a guy who you know as an actor you know really kind of gets into this so he said I'm going to show you something it was the idiot's guide to opera <laughs> I love the fact that he was you know you know just generous enough to laugh at himself he knew nothing about it so he'd buy the idiot's guide anyway he uh, directed that film and of course um i mean we could tell you all there are lots of nice stories about it but so many people then wanted to work on it the cast was just fell into place so everyone wanted to work with him and uh he would sleep in the middle of the day where everyone was at lunch for an hour <laughs> Uh, the alarm went off and he'd be on set at the end of the day. And it was just, it went like clockwork. And uh, the uh, Scottish comedian, do you, know, do you know the cast on it? You probably don't know. But anyway, they, they were, we, you know, on set, people would say, I'm just uh, in awe of this cast. You know, this, this um, uh, you know, the different actors were on. So it was like, it was one of these dream things to make and uh, pleasure to to, to be involved in, a privilege to be involved in. And uh, Harvey um, handled it. It made an absolute fortune for Harvey. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're waiting for uh, the bankruptcy court to, um, well, well I, I left, I sold that company, but, um, but it, was a, it, was a, it was a really lovely film and uh, privilege to make it with this, with just an amazing, um, cast. Tom Courtney was in it, and Tom Courtney played in a, uh, who I think is one of the genius actors of Brit British actors. He played in one of the film when I was a kid. It was Doctor Shivago. He's uh, uh, kind of so to work with these people, you know, in uh, <laughs> in a set just outside London. Um, was was fantastic, fantastic. So, wow. so uh, they, these are just uh, perhaps just you know old man talking about making films, but uh, <laughs> very very real pleasure. But the, the, for me, a fairy tale which said something quite profound, and um, you know, to go through life chasing money and success and uh, accolades, and a story which said at the end of the day, it's not really about that. Is um, maybe to your film teacher, Jail, uh, you know, what film should do, really, you know, generate that sense of, and not just amongst all the gray market, but a wide, a wide audience. It really captured a huge audience who, who want entertainment, 
want a feel-good movie, but it has a kind of something profound at the heart of it. So these are the kind of these throughout the the. It probably sounds like uh, to most people pretentious bollocks, but you know, like uh, uh, I'm looking for in films that I think the irony for me is that if you have a film which has something profound in it, it actually makes more money for the investor. If you make something that's kind of transient, ticks all the boxes and is sensation, right? It, um, it's I'm not saying they don't make money, but the films that are made at low cost are made very well. Really, troubles taken to cast them properly um, can have a real long-lasting life. And you know, um, quartet. I, British television. I see it on every every year. It'll be on two or three channels. It, it will it will have a life of twenty or thirty years. So you know this book, the long tail about the long tail. Well, these are examples of the grey market. My God, you know, don't sneer at older people who enjoy the cinema. And um, there's an opportunity to tell this kind of story. And if it feeds or bleeds into other audiences hey um so it was made for i think it was nine million pounds something like that and they've made i don't know what it says on imdb i better not say but it's made so much money for the, for the private investors money really, really yeah no you're 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 totally right about that Stuart. and you know obviously i think at some point, we might have to do a third hour of the podcast because there's <laughs> yeah. so much, so much good material. But uh, you know, kind of just going back to what you said, and then we can sign off. You know, another thing from my film school days was a great—I think it was a BBC-produced documentary based on a book, uh, "Easy Riders to Raging Bulls," about this okay. great era of studio filmmaking in the 1970s that many have gone back and said pretty much saved Hollywood. Okay. Uh, and what I thought was unique is that like you said you know the storytellers of the time uh which are still a lot, as you know a lot of them great filmmakers today and we talked about some of their films you know the godfather uh you know and uh you know the war movies like uh, you know the deer hunter uh and apocalypse now were all made in the 1970s and as you said studio films made with a lot of heart that also made a lot of money you know for their respective studios so I think part of the answer in terms of what the industry could do today to tackle the big questions of our time is more than just finding individual projects is maybe finding a way to create that ecosystem again that existed, you know, um, what, 40 plus years ago now. And uh, I think that our independent filmmakers today uh, have the talent, but I think what they need is the support system and the resources. And if we can marry those together somehow, we might, maybe, maybe we'll have another, what they call the decade under the influence. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. But I, I think, I mean, I agree that the, 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 in, the irony for me is that the, you used to have a, you know, to edit a film, you need to have an edit machine, you need to have a steam bag, and you had to have a camera and every, every minute of your film had to be had to go to a lab and have eggs made and then cut and post-production and now you can shoot these films on on a phone and uh, you know i um i think that the i could i could you know i think one of the things you should i would do on a podcast are the list the graveyard of great films of great stories because you know i began this chat by remembering writing you know, a radio conversation a radio 
uh, interview with a producer who said oh, it took me seven years to get this on screen and my wife laughing about this only seven years that now there's, there's a there is so much material out there so much being made but where are these things which have a substance and when when i talk about this people kind of roll their eyes because this isn't entertainment and you think well, what is entertainment people want belly laughs they want they want comedy they want documentaries they want every form of drama and there's markets for them and i could I'll, I'll just yeah. end by saying this i i learned something from um you know again privilege of my job is to meet some really great people and the man who created channel four was a scottish a uh, man called a Jewish um, genius uh, called Jeremy Isaacs, who's still, who is still alive. And uh, he used to, he used to, um, he won't remember me, but I used to meet him fairly regularly, funded this company, um, really significant, really helped my company. And uh, he, would, he would come to the region where I live and we'd have dinner. And um, he said, I would say to him, how can you justify, stop me if I've told you the story, by the way, but I think it's for me a really profound, for me, it was profound, a real lesson. He was funding operas for his own opera fan, for live operas every year, for a relatively small audience. And he was being criticized for that. And this was pre-internet, pre-social media. So they're just domestic broadcasting. He said, what people don't realize, I think I did tell you this story actually, but they're already, so I'm repeating myself. But the, the um, there was a market around the world for these films and it had a long life if you made a great now today i think there are films which people are chasing the most obvious you know the kind of shallowest kind of um pursuit of the market whereas if you look in other industries people are doing in in young i think new new you know younger generation are doing some really you know in terms of um you know, my daughter who's here, she works in the fashion business. And what the fashion business is doing, both in terms of environmentally and marketing, using social media, they're just way ahead of um, our industry. I mean, just light years ahead. People are way, way advanced. And in terms of storytelling, we're still trying to make stuff that on the surface looks like a commercial venture, commercial project. But it's... It has no substance, it has no purpose. It's just here today and gone tomorrow. So the, the deer hunters, you know, the godfathers, the, the easy riders, <laughs> these films of the 60s and 70s, um, still around today, still talked about. There are the few examples, I think, of The Wire and Homeland, and, and I think there are a few other smaller advantages. There's some British dramatists, I think. Um, oh, there's a prison drama that went out this year that won the battle. And, uh, by, written by Jim McGovern, genius, I think, really, really talented guy. Uh, some really wonderful programs, but given the amount of drama that's being produced and financed, boy, um, it's pretty depressing. And I, I'm going to say one final, final point, which I, I, I wanted to talk about today, and, and um, there's not enough, not time to do it. We don't really have time to go into this, but when I, when I, um, uh, started Man in the High Castle with Amazon. They had not done a big, expensive drama series like this for the two. And there, as a retailer, it wasn't to fill cinemas and, and get viewers. It was to get subscribers to a retail shop. So their view was to 
and I did talk about this in the first discussion we had, the widest possible demographic. So it was, the, I remember saying, telling you, it was Washington Post they wanted at one end and sci-fi geek and everything between. They wanted to reach everyone in the world. Now, Amazon, Apple and Netflix and the rest now have built huge audiences. They have achieved these audiences, global audiences. The need to make drama that's edgy, different from the domestic broadcaster has gone. They have to service the needs and interests of a demographic, demographic that reads the Washington Post at one end and the sci-fi geeks at the other. So when you take a show like Man the High Cast, I don't think it would ever be made. I think there was an era in which there was an opportunity to make stuff that was on the edge because to get into that crowded marketplace, they couldn't produce food programs and a bit of sport and a, uh, you know, a bit of into light entertainment for a world market. They wanted noisy, ambitious, provocative drama to get a noise, people talking about it, as people subscribe, say, hey, let's have a dip into this, then these people don't want to watch, continue to watch noise, noisy, tough drama. Uh, they want to watch a bit of, you know, adventure, a bit of, you know, nature, but all the kind of, all the stuff that domestic broadcaster does, provides this range. So where now can you make this drama, um, particularly with HBO going and being bought and, and under new management? Discovery. The pressure yeah. of domestic broadcasters who are losing audiences, you know, so private, the commercial companies with the revenues, the public, the public um, broadcasters chasing viewing figures, the need to make a radical, a channel that's a distinctive channel, which raves as a flag, like Amazon did at the beginning, like Netflix did at the beginning. Netflix the same. Netflix, you go on, Netflix is now, I'm not saying they're bad, or they've just got to serve a broad, broad audience. And I've yet to see anyone analyze and interpret that and look at where in the future, going back to my Jeremy Isaacs anecdote of saying, actually, there is a real marketplace for a distinctive high-end drama, um, an HBO style or BBC style drama for a world market that will yeah. not reach a mass market, but it'll reach a global market. And when you yeah. add up the numbers, will actually be like a quartet, long shelf life, money-making would give returns to investors. That's my hope for the next generation. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a tough thing. And, you know, this has been great, the two-part series to really unpack what made the man in the high castle. I mean, this was not only about the man in the high castle, but to your point, you know, what, I, mean, I guess the extraordinary circumstances that made the man in the high castle um, even come to life. And so, I don't know if those kinds of circumstances could happen again, but I hope they do. Um, and this is a business of ebbing and flowing. So my, my hopes are that, you know, although there are still some well-produced uh, dramas and, um, you know, some series of note too. I mean, yeah. you know, but uh, this one was truly unique. And this is coming from someone that is a, a Washington Post reader and a sci-fi geek. <laughs> so uh, this has been an extraordinary, extraordinary interview. Uh, I think JL is right that um, we can get a, a third part at some point because we only explored so much. This is only the third interview that we've had a, as a two-part series. I think we mentioned that uh, the last time and it's been enchanting. 
So I want to thank you uh, for giving us this much time and giving the audience this much time. It's been wonderful. Kevin, it's been my, you know, people say that in interviews, but honestly, it's been a pleasure to meet you. And I look forward to meeting you in Miami early in, uh, late in the summer. Absolutely. Um, I'll reach out. Yeah, good, good. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Right. All right, we're back. Yes. Man. That was great. Great stuff. I have to say, it, it really did take two episodes to understand why the man in the high castle was as good as it was. Yeah. Two Emmys. Mm. Not one, but two. And two. other uh, other nominations. Yeah. And then, of course, we had to delve more into Stuart McKinnon's career and other things. I mean, wow, you, you do get an understanding. Look, I have projects that are, you know, a few years old or so, but look, you know, it said seven years is not a lot of time in yeah. development on a project. Yeah. You know, so you do get an, a better understanding of why projects take so long. And some projects don't even happen, even after they spent a lot of money oh, yeah. uh, to make yeah. those things happen. So, and, and in addition to that, you know, uh, something that it's, you know, been said is that it's not time in this industry, it's timing. So, yeah. you know, when Stuart first started to develop the material, there was no Amazon Prime, pretty much, right? That just mm -hmm. didn't exist. And it just so happened that when Universal said, look, we love the project, can't do much with it. That same afternoon, he gets the call from Amazon <laughs> saying, you know, we heard this thing is available. Can you shoot the pilot in three months? Holy crap, yeah. we would have seen that thing coming. Uh, you know, so I think that one of the biggest things that it seems Stuart was struggling with was just the overall scope and budget of this sort yeah. of larger than life epic series. And how do you kind of realize that in the traditional TV, even in the prestige TV landscape, places yeah. like HBO, who could really afford to recreate that world? And then along comes Jeff Bezos books. And there you go. <laughs> Dropping a bucket for him. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, that was just such a great journey. You know, I'm so happy we got to hear at least a part of this great producer's journey with, with Stewart's interviews. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I said in the last episode, I'm a huge Philip K. Dick fan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, adapt adapt ad adaptations blade runner yep. was and that's you know one of my favorites and man in the high castle another adaptation so oh, yeah. you know there you go but uh i gotta give this shout out and then we'll jump into our last little bits shout out to justin davis one of my favorite actors justin davis awesome. so uh justin davis was in um one of my favorite shows back in the day and uh boardwalk empire and so while that show was running i was afforded the opportunity to meet him and i have a project called the beach chronicles which, which i speak about from time to time so uh, i brought him on board that project he killed it he came to the miami premiere um along with a couple of other people gregory allen howard was there at the premiere although he was not in the actual uh production but joe marie payton from family matters who is in the actual production she really killed it as Maldunavis omaf and uh, arlene tour so the three of them they were like you know my uh my shining stars or three of my shining stars of that series well justin davis now 
uh, has been on one of my, another one of my favorite shows called The Boys. Mm. We were just talking about Amazon Prime. So The Boys is on Amazon Prime and uh, it's just, you know, very violent, but it's a tour de force. You know, it's a superhero, you know, anti-villain, anti-hero story. And it has, you know, I keep talking about favorites. Um, another one of my favorite actors, Giancarlo Esposito, who was actually in the Star Wars canon. Oh. So, you know, he played, um, and I can't remember the name of his character, but he played the evil character that was fighting with uh, the Mandalorian. Right. But he plays evil characters. I mean, everything from Better Call Saul. I mean, he plays them better than anybody else. Yeah. So oh, Justin yeah. Davis plays a young, and I can't remember Giancarlo Esposito's character on The Boys, but he plays a young version of Giancarlo Esposito. And he really, really crushed it. Mm. You know, uh, you, you're looking at the performance and it almost feels like it's Giancarlo, but he adds his own inflections. Right. So... Shout out, my homie, Justin Davis. Uh, let's get you on screen, Heat Miami. I was going to say, we better get an interview after all that. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yes, For I'm sure, sure. It'll, it'll come. Uh, speaking of things coming to fruition, uh, this out of variety, CAA has just promoted six trainees to agents via their Elevate training program. So just want to give a quick shout out, if we're in shout out mode now, to Chris Burris, Inder Gill, Sophie Cavanaugh, Zakaria, well, this is a tough one. Uh -uh. Labudi, Labaudi. Maybe you're not saying, I don't think you said that one right. Zakaria Labaudi. Zakaria, if you're listening, please do message us and let us know. And if you do, we'll also interview you on the show. How's that? Love it. There you go. That's an invite. Arlen Papazian and Kara Pettit were selected from Elevate, the agency's program for executives and agents in training. And it uh, looks like they're all beginning their current roles effective immediately. So good for you guys. You know about that world. So you I know do. how hard it is to be. I know it's a hard thing. And even as an assistant, <laughs> I can't imagine being Zakaria Labudi's, Labaudi's assistant. I think it's Labaudi. Yes. Zakaria Labaudi's office. Zakaria, okay. <laughs> I don't have Zakaria. Yep. Can we return? <laughs> don't mess that name up. Yes. I, the um, other thing is um, always the interesting ways that agents assistants try to tell you why their bosses are not available to speak. Um, you know, the most interesting is, oh, um, just went into the elevator, uh, lost him in the parking structure. We'll get back to you. <laughs> parking structure. Oh, a lot of, man. Lot of underground parking in LA. You lose a lot of claws that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know that you came up with a lot of those. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, good times. Good old times. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, shout out to those folks and hope they do well. Uh, you know, it's an interesting place to be, CA. We mentioned on a previous uh, podcast, uh, my old home, ICM, uh, which is where I trained and studied. Uh, under Mr. Craig Bernstein is now part of CAA. That was a merger that I think went through. And so it's uh, definitely an interesting shop that we'll be following uh, throughout the course of this podcast. There you go. Um, so we do have to give a shout out and you know maybe we should have done this at the top of the key. It's Pride Month. And so, yes, yeah. yeah. And you know, Screen Heat Miami, we're all about you know diversity, inclusion, outreach for everyone across the board. You know, we have love for uh, for all. 
And certainly during Pride Month, uh, we can celebrate mm-hmm. advances. And I'm going to go back into another one of my favorite shows. I love Umbrella Academy. Okay, I, have I haven't two seen t-shirts. that one, I'll be honest. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Uh, and, and I read the comics, the, well, actually right. graphic novels. But um, I, I mean, I, I love that show. And so formerly Ellen Page, who is now uh, Elliot Page, right? Uh, it's going into its third season. And the showrunner is excited about uh, celebrating what this transition is going to be. So I'm, I'm excited about seeing how they uh, uh, really uh, showcase this. Hmm. Hey, excitement to me means, you know, it should be tremendous. And I've really, really loved the first two seasons. Sure. I didn't think uh, off of the first three episodes, if I, I wasn't sure, really, after the first three episodes, I, I usually give things about two episodes or three. Right. But going into the fourth episode of the first season, um, I knew it was a fan. And even going into the second season, I still, you know, I was kind of shaky about the first episode of the show right. or so. But by the end of uh, that season, still excited. So I can't wait to see the third season. So Absolutely. things move on and we can go from three to four. Marvel phase four. Oh, yes. It's coming. Man, what a tremendous job Kevin Feige has done. I mean, I remember that first Iron Man and, you know, his vision, really. Right. Now, who, who would have known that it was going to then now become, you know, the most profitable and, and change the industry? Because before the Kevin Feige era, there really was not this, uh, you know, comic, sci-fi movie takeover. That's all I could call it. You know, it, it, that's really taken over the industry. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the movies. Right. And I can tell you, there was an article that came out last week with, and, and this guy is the most bankable star in history. Mm. So Samuel L. Jackson, the most bankable star in history. And look, we talked about all these franchises. Look at Samuel L. Jackson. Mm. We could talk about Disney. He's Marvel. He's been in Star Wars. He's yeah. been in The Incredibles because he yeah. plays Frozone in The Incredibles. Jurassic Park. I mean, one of the most bankable talents. So hardest he, working man in Hollywood. The hardest working man in Hollywood. <laughs> so he he talked about you know whether he really you know was upset that he hasn't won a you know a lot of Oscars and he said, look, look at all the indelible characters that I played. Over mm-hmm. time, I mean, yeah. you know, that's something. And yeah. he's pervasively interwoven into the Marvel ecosystem as mm-hmm. Nick Fury. And so, you know, I, I mean, the movies have tapped some of our best talent in the world. I'm sorry, Martin Scorsese. I'm sorry, anyone. That oh, says, you're going up against the bard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I love the movies. I love the Marvel, the Marvel movies. Maybe there's been one or two that I haven't just super loved. But I mean, I love what Kevin Feige has done. And now uh, they're talking about Phase Four. And look, I've read I don't know how many of not just the comics, but the storylines. Everything from the Shi'ar Dynasty, which they haven't even touched yet, 
to, of course, you know, everything else that they have touched. X-Men, huge fan, have a bunch of those comics. And, the, you know, the list goes on and on. So now uh, they're talking about this 12, it's a 12 issue event, uh, the comics known as the Secret Wars, which another, I mean, they have so much source material, but, uh, you know, another, another incredible storyline. Mm. And, you know, I, it, it, in the article, which is a deadline article, it talks about, you know, who may helm these, the Russo brothers who did Avengers Endgames, uh, both of those films. Yeah. Uh, it looks like they're going to spearhead it. Yeah. And you, it's going to bring everybody, everybody, X-Men, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Deadpool, the Avengers. I mean, man, if they pull this off, just forget it. Wow. Just forget it, man. It's an eight-hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, they do it so well, you know, having yeah. a lot of characters in a movie without it becoming muddy. Yeah, that's very hard to do. Very hard to do. And the Russo brothers are very talented at that. And they, yeah. they do a pretty good job of kind of balancing out all those superheroes, imagine, you know, and the stars that play them. And like, you know, how do you kind of balance all that out in, in this sort of cinematic universe, so to yeah. speak? It's not an easy task. And those guys, yeah, they do a great job. Obviously, as you mentioned, you know, Kevin Feige was the head of uh, the Marvel Studios there. Also just a fantastic leader for that organization. And, and yeah, excited to see what's to come. I'm, I'm excited to see Thor. It looks like a fun movie coming out. Yeah, it does. Love yeah. and Thunder. Uh, that looks Mr. like a Watiti. Yes, yes, yes. A sidebar there. I was able to experience the Guardians of the Galaxy ride. At, oh. Uh, Epcot. How was that? It was awesome, dude. And actually, <laughs> it, it reminds me of something. I got to ask, because uh, my kids went on it. So I think that might be a, a way to bring them back and give their perspective. Oh, <laughs> well, we love it. <laughs> We've had them up on the website for yes. years. Yes. Time, time, time for, for that. Yes, time, time for that to sequel. replace that. Yeah, so they'll they'll tell you a little bit more about their experience. Do that sooner than later. Absolutely, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and just kind of this world of immersive storytelling now, yeah. uh, I think, is definitely coming to play. I know you're going to speak a lot about that at MMFM via the metaverse and all the exciting ways that stories are unfolding in this digital age. Yep. Yep. Exciting times, my friend. Exciting yeah, times. It is. So um, we bring another Screen Heat Miami to a close. Mm -hmm. uh, again, one of my favorite episodes, these last two of the series. But we have a lot more in store, a lot more coming up. So I'm Kevin Sharpley. JL Martinez. And this is Screen Heat Miami. We'll hear you next week. Dolly. <laughs> Boom. <laughs>